Hello, hello. Hey up, what's up, what's good? Que cosa sucede? Ni hao, priviet. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, intellectual, and artistic people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. We have a brilliant show for today. With a wonderful and intelligent guest, New York author Charles Salzberg joins the show. Crime and detective stories are some of the most popular in the world. In film, we have classics such as The Maltese Falcon or 1974's Chinatown, one of my personal favorites. And in literature, detective novels have produced some of the most iconic characters of all time, from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes to Agatha Christie's Meticulous Poirot. It's something about watching someone of immense intelligence putting together an unsolvable puzzle that is massively addicting. I think when one reads a detective novel, they always aspire to figure out who done it before the hero makes his accurate deduction. Because these stories are so addicting, I'm often on the look for great crime and detective novels. That being said, I was pleasantly surprised when I stumbled upon Charles Salzberg. The New York author began his literary life in the mailroom at New York Magazine. And one thing led to another, and learning early on never to say no, he began writing book reviews, ghostwriting books for others who thought they had something important to say but didn't know how to say it. Wrote books under his own name and in collaboration with others. After a successful career as a magazine journalist, book reviewer, nonfiction book writer, he made a move to fulfilling the dream of becoming a novelist. When his first novel, Swan's Last Song, was published and wound up being nominated for a Seamus Award for Best First P.I. Novel. Four more novels appeared in the Henry Swan series and he wrote two successful standalone novels, Devil in the Hole, which was named one of the best crime novels of 2013 by Suspense Magazine, and Second Story Man. A friend of mine introduced me to the series and I was instantly hooked, partly because the hero in the story is someone that we can all relate to. He's dynamic and intrepid, but he's also relatable because he has his flaws. And they're just really enjoyable stories, really fun. And Charles does a great job of weaving multiple plots at once to enhance the suspense while additionally creating successful page turners. On today's episode, Charles reminisces back on his time at New York Magazine and how that was the genesis of his writing career. Charles also chats about how he balances multiple plots in a story. And finally, Charles and I talk about some of his nonfiction work, including a couple of sports books that he wrote. This was such an amazing conversation for me because having read several of the books in the Swan series, I felt like I knew Charles. I felt like he was an old friend. Uh, we hit it off immediately. It did not feel like an interview in any way. He's Incredibly intelligent. He's a gifted storyteller and a great conversationalist. I encourage everyone to pick up the Swan series by Charles. Thrilled for everyone to meet him. So let's go ahead and bring on New York author Charles Salzberg and let's learn. I love your background story and how you took a leap of faith as a freelance writer. And, and also, you had this philosophy of never saying no, which is something I appreciate and admire. When you look back on those years when you first started, what are the first memories that come to mind? Well, the first memories were um, realizing when I was in my mid-twenties, that I was never going to make a living as a, as a novelist because I was writing literary stuff and, and I knew I never was. And a friend of mine said, look, you need to get a job. And um, why don't you, you're an English major, you like to write, why don't you try to be a, a magazine editor? So I thought, well, that sounds, I love magazines, that sounds pretty good. And some, a friend of my mother's worked at New York Magazine. And she said, there's a, um, a, a spot in the mailroom. At the time, I was teaching. I was teaching, and I was making fairly good money for the time. And she, they interviewed me for the job, and they offered me the job. And it was $125 a week, Randall. I, I was making that a day as a teacher. 
But I wanted to do it because they said to me, um, we move people up really quickly. And in my mind, you know, I was relatively young and, and it was like, oh, I'm going to be here like a couple of months and I'll be an editor. You know, I'll, I'll move right up. But um, I, I, I wound up in the mailroom and the other guy in the mailroom, uh, Carl Hine, who's still a friend of mine, he was a few years older than me and he was a, a philosophy professor who'd been laid off. So he had a PhD and he's working in the mailroom there. And he got the same story about moving up. And um, my, my memory is being in that mailroom and the, 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 the New York Magazine at the time was like the old um, you know, movies, uh, the newspaper movies, where there weren't offices. There was one huge room where everyone had desks, no cubicles, nothing. It was all open. And Clay Felker, who was the editor-in-chief who invented the New York um, he invented New York Magazine, and that was the first city magazine. Uh, and he had an office way at the back and one big desk outside the office, and like a, like a captain of a ship, and he'd sit there. And I was in the mailroom, and um, I had to learn how to you know, run the mail machine and all that. And my memory is people coming in, all these famous writers, the, the quickest way from the elevator to that main room was through the mailroom. So they would come through the mailroom and they would stop and talk to us. You know, you had, you had one PhD in the mailroom and you had another guy who had not only had uh, four years of college, but I had a year of law school. So they would stop and talk to us, people like John Simon and uh, Ken Oletta. Um, as a funny story about Ken Oletta, years later, um, I was at a uh, kind of a celebrity softball game that a guy by the name of Stephen Brill threw. And at the end of the game, it was it was the... Long Island, the Hamptons crowd versus the Westchester crowd, and he had a um, he had a, a a buffet after. And I'm standing online, and um, and this is this is a good twenty years after New York Magazine, and Ken Oletta is right in front of me, and I I you know I figured he's not nobody gonna gonna remember me, but he turns around and he looks at me and he says, "You look very familiar." And I said, oh, yeah, I used to deliver your mail to you 20 years ago at New York Magazine. Uh, so it was, those are my memories. Is being, I was only there for three months. I quit after three months. Had no job. Hadn't sold an article yet. But um, I, I knew I wanted to write, not, not be an editor. Because uh, the, writers, the writers were great. They'd come in um, 10, 30, 11. They'd smoke cigarettes. They'd drink coffee. About 12 o'clock, they'd go out for lunch. Around 2.30. You know, you'd, you'd smell alcohol on the way in because they were coming from those long lunches. Yeah. And they'd come in and they'd talk to the editors and they'd drink coffee and talk on the phone and they'd leave at 4 o'clock. And, and I they thought, might not have written the thing either. Yeah. Yeah, that's the job I want. I don't want to be an editor and, you know, sitting yeah. there all day and, and on Thursday nights for closing, they were there till midnight. So, so those are my memories of, of New York Magazine, which turned out to be the best thing I ever did was take that job for $100 a, a week. We talk more about not saying no because i know that's just easy in theory but it, it, i know it's so important and so prominent in your life by doing that so what were some of the jobs you were taking that maybe you wouldn't have taken 10 years later five years later but at the time you're just like yep i'll do it i'll do it what I'll, were some I'll, of those I'll you, yeah i'll tell you two that come to mind one is was writing articles and a friend of mine said um uh you know i i i did an article on this guy who was a fashion uh he, he was a you know, a fashion guy, he, his name was Alan Flusser. 
and he was a designer. And she, he had hired her to write his book. And then she got a job at Ladies Home Journal, full-time job, and she couldn't do the, the book. So she said to me, you, you should do it. I said, first of all, I know nothing about fashion. Nothing. I've never written a book before. And she said, well, just go meet him. So I, I went and I met him. And for some reason, he liked me. Again, I knew nothing about fashion. I was wearing jeans and a T-shirt. And, and he hired me. And, and I didn't say, I, I could have said no because I knew nothing about fashion. Yeah. That, that was one example. The other is, um, I had no intention of teaching ever. And a friend of mine called up and said, look, you know, I'm teaching this magazine class and it's oversubscribed. So they want to start another section. Would you do it? I said, I, I've never, I never took a journalism class in my life. I just went out and did it. I can't, I can't teach. And she said, oh, sure you can. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, okay. And I said, yes. And that was the start of, of a career that really kept me because, you know, when you're a freelance writer, you have really, um, it's up and down. You can, you can not work for three, four months, not get an assignment. But I always had money coming in because of the teaching. So those are two examples where I had no business saying yes because I didn't know how to do either. But I just said yes. And, and eventually I re learned that whatever it is, I'm going to figure out how to yeah. do it. Yeah. Uh, I remember the, the basketball book I did. It was the first book alone. And I remember getting the, the, the deal. And suddenly I realized I can't do this. I, I've never written a book before. And then I thought, well, you know, I'll give back the money because I hadn't spent any of it yet. And then I thought, wait a minute. If I look at this as not a book, but 12 magazine articles, like 12 chapters, I'll be fine. And, and so I did it. So it, it was a slow recognizing of just, just say yes, because you're, you're probably going to figure out how to do it. Uh, and if you say no, there's no chance you're going to do it at all. It's one of the biggest lessons I learned from doing this show talk to people who've ascended Everest and they say, you don't need to know the journey. Just take this first step. You'll figure it out on the way. And part of that excitement exactly. is figuring out on the way. One thing I love about your character, Henry Swan, is that he isn't perfect. He has his flaws, which makes him very relatable. I know there was times where I was reading it and I was laughing. And I was also like, oh, don't do that. Or there was times where I definitely did relate. What was your motivation for that? Did you write him or did, did he write himself? The, 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 the motivation for the entire turned out to be a series because it was only going to be one book. Yeah. was revenge. And it. what I mean is that I, I, had, I was accepted into um, a master's program at Columbia, an MFA program. And I went in and I had to submit a, a, a novel. And uh, I did. And the, the person who ran the program had me in and said, oh, you got a really good reading on your novel. Anyway, I wound up with a guy as a teacher who kind of lied to me. He said, you know, you got in here by the skin of your teeth. And he said to me, don't you know what a story is? I said, yeah. He said, you know, you write this um, kind of um, Dostoevsky, Philip Roth, Nabokov kind of, you know, psychological crap. Um, you know, you should read Chekhov. I had been an English major. I, I knew how to, you know, tell a story. And I knew what he was talking about plot. <clears throat> I quit. I, I quit that like a week later. But I thought, you know, I'm going to show him. I'm going to find, I'm going to write a book that has to be really tightly plotted. And I thought, well, the only kind of book I know like that is a detective novel. You, you can't fool around, you know, you have to, it has to be really constructed and there has to be a plot, you know, a beginning and a middle and an end. And so I read, I, I had always read mysteries or detective novels, but I went out and I, like a dozen, and I started to write one and I, it was gonna be 
it was going to be a um, not not a, a parody of one, but it was going to be different. But I didn't realize how different it, it was going to be when I started it. So I wanted a character that you know it starts off in a, in a very traditional way. The guy is you know his office, and a beautiful woman comes in to hire him. But I wanted him to be totally against type. I wanted him to be you know politically incorrect, although at that time they didn't really use that term. I wanted him to be, you know, down and out. I wanted him to be all the things that a detective's not supposed to be. Um, you know, I wanted him to be literate. So I wanted him to 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 quote, you know, um, poetry and, and all that stuff. And so that's how that book came about. I had no intention of, of writing another crime novel, but it came out and it was nominated for a Seamus Award for Best First Novel. I, I did not even know what a Seamus Award was. But once you're, once you're nominated for something like that, you start to get the dreams of, well, what if I win? So um, I didn't win, but I got so pissed off. I said, I'm going to keep writing these things until I win something. And that's, that's what did it. So I had no intention of being a crime writer. Uh, I, it turns out that I love doing it because I could write almost anything I want. And, um, and, and of course, I, I, I wound up being a couple of years ago being nominated again for a Seamus that I lost. But that same book won the Beverly Hills Book Award. So I, I, I've actually won something now. But so it was all out of kind of, um, you know, I'll, I'll get back at you. I'll show you what, what I can do. I mean, you and I probably both love Count of Monte Cristo. So revenge is always mm -hmm. one of the greatest factors Absolutely. of everything. So, um, great motivator. Oh, great. <laughs> Maybe the best motivator. Mm -hmm. in, in the Swan series, there's often multiple plots going on at once. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, how do you balance that? How do you balance adding a new aspect into the plot without negatively affecting maybe something existing that you already wrote? Mm -hmm. It's really, I'm really glad you asked that because I got the idea to do it because I thought, you know, no real private detective can, can just work on one case. You know, you have to make a living and there's no way. So a real private detective probably works on two or three cases at once. So I thought I'm going to have Swan, and this was after the first book. I'm going to have Swan work on more than one case. Yeah. And so I created three different cases. And it was, it, it's a feel that you have when, when he leaves one case and another. Mm -hmm. And I think most writers have this. It's kind of a, probably like a musician. You have a, a sense of the beat. So I knew I'd have him work one case. And then it would just be a feeling, oh, he's got to work the other case now. So I don't outline books. So it wasn't like I outlined it. And somehow they, they all, and I wanted to be the totally different cases. I didn't want, some books will have all these cases come together at the end. I wanted to have two or three cases that were totally separate. And so somehow by the end of the book, I was able to, to have him finish all three cases. So it, it wasn't, I didn't plan out like a schematic of when he's going to go from one case to another. It was just a feel. And I think he's pursuing more than one case because he's perpetually curious. Yeah, and he's got to he's got to make a living, mm -hmm. you know. And he can't he can't do it on one case. He's not he, he's not saying no. That's what it is. that's right. It's the same that's mentality right. of his of his creator. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You're a longtime resident of New York City, and many spectacular books take place in your city. What is it about the location that makes for such great stories? Well, first of all, I'm going to shock you, and that is that I hate writing about New York, and the reason I hate it is I know it too well. 
And I'm better Mm -hmm. off writing about places I've never been. So in the first book, Swan, he goes to L.A. I had never been to L.A. when I wrote that book. And a friend of mine said to me, who knew me well, he said, when did you go to L.A.? I said, (laughs) never. He said, how did you capture it? It's, It's pretty easy. Never been to that part of Mexico and never been to Berlin. New York is great because there's so many different neighborhoods and so many different people. And, you know, there's that old Naked City um, movie, which then became a series. You know, there are 8 million or 7 million stories in New York City. And I, I think that's true. Um, but the other thing is that, they, that you can walk five blocks in your another neighborhood. I'm sure Chicago's like that, too. Um, but the, the other thing is New York's a walking city. So you can get, and it's a public transportation city. So you don't need a car. So you can get anywhere without without having a car. And, um, and within, you know, 20, 30 minutes taking the subway. So it's very conducive to, to that. Um, and to, for instance, Swan, his, in the first book, his office is in Spanish Harlem. But he lives in the East Village. And they're very different places, but they've got a feel to it that it's that, that's alike because they're marginal, they're marginal neighborhoods, or they, they were at the time. East Village is is not marginal anymore; or it's it's really kind of um, you know upscale. But when I started writing those books, so so that's why New York is great. But I actually like places writing about places I've only been once or that I can imagine. So I'm guessing you haven't been to Austin. I have not been to Austin. Okay. No. Yeah. No. Salons like a despair. Uh, I, um, uh, let's see. Oops. Um, having never said no, we talked about that earlier. But because of that, you've had quite an eclectic writing background. With that, how do you how do you stay creative? Because I know you've worked on many different projects. So how do you ensure that your writing stays fresh and that you come up with new ideas? You know, I I, I wish I could say that I do it purposely. <laughs> I, I've never had I've never had writer's block. <clears throat> My friends don't believe this because I have so many books. I'm extremely lazy. And I actually write very little. Sometimes I don't write at all during a day or a week. I'm a really fast typist. And I can, when I sit down at the computer, I'm never, I'm never blanked. Yeah. I can focus really well. Yeah. And if there's a blank page, <clears throat> I think the best thing that ever happened to me was being a journalist first. Okay. Because I learned two things. I learned to write to a word count. Really important, really important because you have to choose your words. And the other is, is I learned if I didn't, if I didn't write, I didn't, I didn't eat, I didn't get paid. So I didn't, I, I never had this sense of what am I going to do? And it's the other thing is, I wish I could say it's conscious, but if I'm walking in the street, a sentence will come to my mind. Um, so it's, I think most writers will say it's almost an unconscious. I mean, there are some writers like Jeffrey Deaver. Who will, when he writes, he'll do a 140-page outline before he'll even sit down and start the book. All I need is a first line yeah. and a character. That's all I need. And then, and I don't know what's going to happen on the next page, the next line. I just don't know. I sit down and it's almost, I see a film in my head. And it's so, I wish I could explain or, or define what it is but it's just it's kind of like magic and you're always afraid you're going to lose that magic too um but i never have and the other thing is being ornery i like to i like to be different so i'll do i'll write myself into a corner where i think people think i'm going and then i'll 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 change up um and and throw throw i'll call throwing a hand grenade into the book 
So I have to do something different. I had another writer on the show who said something almost exactly the same as far as it's him watching a movie and it's just the same thing. And you're trying to get that movie as close as you can onto the page that you see in your head. But I have a friend who can be a problem for her. She has to know exactly what's going to happen in the book when she, before she can start writing. The problem she said is that when she hands it into her editor or agent and they ask for changes and she's not being difficult, She'll say to herself, well, that's not the way it happened. I can't change that. That's not, that's not the way it happened. Yeah. So for me, I, I can change it yeah. because, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, not, it's only the way it happened because that's the way I saw it at the moment. Uh, two comments on that one. Um, I, I think a Tony Kornheiser, a sports writer who grew up in New York City, but he always said about writer's block, he goes, no, you can't get writer's block because if you do, you're not a writer. <laughs> he goes, you're yeah, not going to have a successful I, I, career. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And, um, uh, I've actually never had, you know, I know a lot of writers and I don't know any of them who've had that classic writer's block where they can't do it. There's something else going on with someone who has that, Randall, I think, you know, maybe they have an alcohol problem or a psychological problem, but real writers who have to, who are craftsmen somehow overcome that and sit down and write. I'm thinking back to when you were talking about when you were in the mailroom about how the writers would stroll in and non-traditional hours and with alcohol in their breath and just made me think of most of the time writers will find a hundred things on their list that they can do before they actually have to write. So maybe, maybe you're not exactly. lazy. You're not lazy. You're just, you're the epitome of a writer. There is. I have a funny story about that. I have a yeah. friend, Josh Brand, who is, um, he was the co-creator of uh, Northern Exposure Okay. and he worked on the Americans. <clears throat> and after, at the time of America, uh, of um, Northern Exposure, he got a big contract from the studio seven years or something like that and they gave him an office and in his office he had a tv and a couch and he'd go in he'd you know he'd lie down he'd read the paper he'd take a nap he'd watch tv and maybe he'd get a little writing done so he moves back here to new york with his wife and he'd go home and his wife would say josh how was he said on a really tough day at work you know, really had a tough day so he comes back to new york and he doesn't have an office and he's around the apartment all the time and his wife sees him you know taking a nap, reading the paper. She says, wait a minute, this is your idea of a tough day? So he had to go out and find an office someplace because, you know, but that's that, I I really identified with that because most, I know I have some friends who treat it like a job, Randall, where they really will, they'll lock themselves in a room at nine to 11 or 12 and then lunch. And then most writers I know don't do that. Um, So it's, you know, everyone's kind of different, but, but you're right. You, you're kind of writing even when you're not. But try telling that to someone who works an eight-hour day as a yeah. mail deliverer or a, you know, you know, a jack working a jackhammer. That you're, you know, when you're lying on the couch, you know, close to a nap, that you're working. You know, uh, I, one thing I, I always have a problem. I'm, friends of mine think I'm wrong about this. I hate it when people say, "Oh, writing must be hard work," and I'm saying, "No, no, no. Delivering mail, you know, working in a store." Uh, being on your feet, that's, you know, working a jackhammer, that's hard work. Writing is not hard work, at least to me. I mean, it's, t- it's not easy, but it's not hard work. You know, I have a lot of respect for people who work 40 hour or more weeks, you know, and, and maybe they work in a, in a department store and they're on their feet all day. That's hard work. At the back of your book and the acknowledgments, you're crediting people that are your friends who you've used as the names in the yes, books. Yeah. Is, is, it, is it more of like a honoring your friends or are you taking bits of their personality? And what's been the general reception? 
it started as a placeholder. I couldn't think of a name for a character. Oh, okay. And then it got really fun. But so Ross Clavin is one of my best friends, and he and Mark Goldblatt. He, 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 I just call him both. But they're both very different. They're little little things, but they're very different. And a lot of the other characters, like Richard Dugan, who's a professor friend of mine up in Syracuse, and I used I asked permission, and I used him. A funny story. I used him, and I said, Richard, you know, this isn't really you. It's just your name. And he invited me up to Syracuse to talk to his class. And he bends over before and he says. You know, I really don't have a fat ass. I said, Richard, it's not you. I just yeah, used yeah. your name yeah. and the fact that you were a professor. Yeah. Uh, and it got to be a thing where people want, friends wanted to, to be. Okay. And I wrote an essay about it for the New York Times, um, you know, uh, because it was just a thing. So it, was, it started off as an accident and it started off as like a, a cute thing to do for my friends. The, the, the character in that of Julia Scully Mm -hmm. is real. She was a student of mine. She's okay. 93 years old now. And that's a true story of, with her and Eddie Feingersh. She really did have him, who's a real person, and he was a, um, uh, a, a, a photographer, uh, an editorial photographer who had a drinking problem. And I asked her if I could use her story in the book, and she said yes. And so that's a true, absolutely true story about his photos and, and his, his photos other than the ones of Marilyn Monroe, have never been found. No one knows what happened to the... And when I heard that, I thought, that's a good mystery yeah. to, um, to give Swan. So that's the little factoid about that book. You also done a lot of nonfiction writing, including one that caught me eye, Baseball's Worst Teams. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised that I didn't see any Detroit Tigers of recent years on there because uh, they've definitely pushed into that. How does your mentality differ when you're doing nonfiction towards some of your novels? I, I, I don't write nonfiction anymore, although I do research for books, so it's like that. I never liked writing nonfiction, but I had a ball writing that book, which was the idea of a friend of mine, George Robinson, who was the co-author. Uh, I have to give him credit. It was his idea, and he came to me because I'd done books before, and he hadn't done any. And so we had a blast doing that because we went up to the Baseball Hall of Fame to do a lot of the research. And, and I got some good chapters because I got the New York Mets and I got the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, mm -hmm. uh, but we stopped in the 90s, which may be why the Detroit team didn't make it. <laughs> but but our, our, the, it, to make it, you had to be the worst team of the, of the, of the decade, of okay. a particular decade. So everyone would say, how about the Cleveland Browns? Well, the Cleveland Browns were horrible for years, but they never quite made it as the worst team in any decade. Yeah. So that may have been true of the Tigers, too, is they may have been really bad for a long period of time, but they were not the worst. Was there one consistent factor that you saw that all the bad teams had? Yes, they were much more interesting and fun oh, to watch perfect, perfect. and read about. Okay. The New York Mets, but every team, every team. I mean, you know, in the Pittsburgh Pirates, you know, when Ralph Kiner, that the year before, 52, he led the league in home runs and he went to Branch Ricky to get a, uh, a raise. And Ricky said, look, I'm not giving you a raise. We came in last with you. We can come in last without you. And my other favorite story was the Boston Braves of 35 and Babe Ruth ended his career with that team. And Babe Ruth's, um, his dream was to manage the Yankees. And the owner was asked about it and the owner said, he can't even manage himself. How can mm -hmm. he manage the Yankees? 
So the, the thing about losers is great stories, and, and that's, that's what makes them different. I, I think you're right on the spot. I always think of, you know, give me an A, give me the best team, or give me the worst. Give me a story. Nothing in the middle. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be bad, be the worst, and you're right. There's always lots of great stories. I got one more yeah. sports-related question to ask you. You wrote a piece on umpires that allowed you yes. to have time in the Yankees press box, which is, must have been an experience yeah. as a phone. What was your favorite memories from writing about umpires? Because that's a, a world that I know little about. I knew little about it too, and um, my memories of it is going to the clubhouse um, too, and I saw a big basket of baseballs, and I never knew this, that they had to rub up the, bat, the baseballs before they used them. So that was the, the umpires, one of their jobs, not, you know, they would rub up, you know, they would just take the baseball and, and rub it between their hands and then put it in the bed. And so the, the memory of that bag of you you know rubbed up baseballs uh before they were used is is one and um they were just really nice guys and it was a job where no matter what you do 50 percent of the people are going to think you made the wrong call yeah, yeah. so the the i the pressure <laughs> that they must be under you have to be a really special person i think to be an umpire or referee uh, and for my basketball book, I, I talked to one referee too, is I could never do it. I, I too much want to be liked by everyone to do it, but they know that whatever call they make, 50% of the people are going to, you know, get on them for it. So th that's my memories of, of them. And getting an, uh, a Haagen-Dazs ice cream pop for 50 cents, <laughs> because up in the, you know, the press box, they get really cheap food. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's probably why a lot of those guys were the low rate. Yeah. So I thought 50 cents for a Haagen-Dazs, they'd be going for 3 to $4 or something. That was my other memory of doing that story. Turbulent year for many. So for you, what do you think was the biggest lesson that you learned? And it doesn't even have to be writing related, just in life. The biggest lesson I learned is that I've been rehearsing for this isolation my entire life. <laughs> I feel so guilty, Randall. Uh, this I'm is relating to you already. I'm, I'm laughing because... Yeah. I felt the same. Yeah, I, it's like having a you know, like a kid who does something wrong, and you send him to his room, and he's got everything there. I mean, there's Netflix, Prime, HBO. I read like like two dozen novels. I I, I started listening to true crime podcasts and, and podcasts like yours, which I'd never done before. That was the lesson I learned: is that I'm much too comfortable being in by myself. That's that's what I learned, yeah. uh, and it's going to be an adjustment when I can go out again you know, freely. Yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, I meet my friend Ross, who's a screenwriter and novelist, once a week for, to you know, have lunch, and I have a walk with my friend Bob. And the best thing I do is um, every Monday night, I, I Zoom with four other prime writers, two of whom are also comedy writers. Uh, you know, they worked on the Seinfeld and, and all those shows, and that's a blast. So um, I've, I've gotten close relationships with people. But yeah, that's the one that, that I'm kind of embarrassed about is that that how easily the, this was for me. And I know people are having a really tough time, and, and I'm just not. This has been so much fun. Gosh, how can people stay up to date with your career and find more information and pick up your books? Um, I have a website, charlesalsberg.com, that a friend of mine did, and she just redid it. And it's even got Swan videos on it, which, mm -hmm. which are great. And my friend Ross Clavin, who's an actor and a writer, he did the voice of Henry Swan. And she made, I think, four or five, like, three-minute videos which are really great and she created a desk with a with a tape yeah. recorder on it so it's charlesalsberg.com you know 
and you know anyone can email me too i mean i'm i don't hide so uh you know i don't mind getting emails and um i just i i had a book called second story man which that's the one that was won an award it was nominated for two or three others and i just finished a um a sequel to it called man on the run and i have a book that my agent is sending around now called um canary in the coal mine which is a, which is with a new uh investigator uh, so that's that's what i've been doing fantastic any social media that you want to mention uh yeah facebook i have a, an author page and a regular page okay. friend me i have no problem and unless you own the only picture you have is you as a doctor or in an army uniform and you have no posts and no friends you know uh, otherwise, um, you know, you can, and Twitter, I, I have 1,800 Twitter followers. I think most of them are real estate people and hookers because I have no idea who they are. Um, but yeah, so I, I am on social media. This is so much fun. So much fun. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And I'll, I'll make it a point next time I'm in New York City. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a ring, see if you're around. Yeah, are we'll you have dinner or lunch or something. Absolutely. We'll go to some place that Goldblatt would choose. Okay, maybe I'll even bring, I'll have them come in. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Look forward to talking again. This was great. Thank you so much. I'm glad you found me. All right. Take care, man. Thank Thanks, you. Charles. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Much appreciation to Charles. For more information, check out his website, charlessalzberg.com. And be sure to pick up the Henry Swan book series, which starts with Swan's last song and most recently, Swan's Down. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway Show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Adiento.